Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 66, Deborah Turkheimer, Incredible Women. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Deb Turkheimer. Deb is class of 1940 research professor of law at Northwestern University. Deb teaches evidence, feminist legal theory, and criminal law, and her research focuses on legal issues surrounding sexual violence and domestic violence, including a well-received book on shaken baby syndrome that was published by Oxford University Press in 2014. Our podcast today features Deb's new article, Incredible Women, Sexual Violence and the Credibility Discount, which was published in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review. In it, Deb coins the term credibility discount to describe the skepticism that victims of sexual misconduct often face from police, prosecutors, and the general public when they report crimes. She describes how this credibility discount, embodied in past formal legal doctrine, has migrated in modern times to informal practices, where they continue to have detrimental effects on victim reporting and prosecutions. Deb casts the credibility discount as a form of discrimination, plain and simple, and suggests some legal options for addressing it. Deb, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Central to your article is this idea of a credibility discount. Can you tell us what you mean by a credibility discount? What I have in mind by talking about a credibility discount is an unwarranted baseline of skepticism. And I'm particularly focused in the article on credibility discounting in the context of sexual misconduct allegations, so sexual assault. And although the article doesn't talk too much about this, sexual harassment as well would fall into this category of circumstances that are quite likely to trigger this unjustified skepticism of a complaint. Historically, you suggest that this discount was accomplished through a variety of formal mechanisms, uh, today through more informal mechanisms, Tell us a little bit more about that. How do the legal doctrines demonstrate a credibility discount? And to what extent has that changed in a formal sense? So I think this was really interesting for me in in working on this piece was to track the migration of the credibility discount from a formal embodiment in our laws and procedures to this more informal practice. So if we look at the law of rape historically, we see a number of procedural requirements, which for the most part have disappeared, not entirely, but for the most part. But I think it matters a lot that they lie at the origins of rape law. So for instance, there was a unique corroboration requirement for rape cases, which meant that absent some kind of corroboration beyond the the testimony or the allegation of the complainant, 
a case would be considered insufficient, legally insufficient, and could not proceed to the trier of fact for a determination. And it, just to underscore, that was different from any way of treating any other kind of criminal allegation. The prompt outcry requirement is another really, I think, nice illustration of this kind of baked-in credibility discount. And so there, if the complainant didn't make a report within a certain amount of time, again, the case could not proceed. And, and this was entirely outside the sort of statute of limitations issue that does apply across the board. This was about how quickly she or he came forward and told someone in law enforcement that this had happened. And then I think cautionary jury instructions, another really powerful example of the, the skepticism with which our formal laws treated sexual assault complaints. And so you can see what courts told juries about the particular care with which sexual assault allegations should be viewed and the special extra skepticism that, that should attend them. And so those are three procedural examples of ways in which the law itself viewed sexual assault cases differently, the sort of rape exceptionalism and ways in which credibility was discounted. You know, we can also think about the force requirement that was traditionally a part of the substantive law of rape and continues to be so in about half the states, the requirement that in addition to non-consent, the prosecution prove physical force beyond a reasonable doubt we might think about that as a special corroboration requirement, that it's not enough for someone to testify convincingly to a lack of consent, but this physical force is a way of adding a hurdle that can make the trier a fact and can make us even more confident that we've gotten this right. And why do you think there were all these requirements that were imposed, especially in the sexual assault type cases? Certainly, one can come up with more nefarious reasons, some kind of protectionism, or there's a gendered aspect to it. But certainly, it would seem that there were also some possible justifications or non-nefarious justifications for this at some point. Yeah, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts about that. I guess I tend to think that the gendered explanations and the sort of the rationale for rape law are the most important considerations here. And so traditionally, rape law was designed to protect women's chastity, and in particular, the sort of property interest that men had over women's chastity. And a lot flowed from that. And I think that part of the credibility discount stems from this notion that only certain kinds of rape should ultimately proceed through the criminal justice system and to accountability. And other kinds, particularly involving non-strangers, don't fall into that category of the kinds of sexual assault that should be handled in a punitive way. And so to my mind, although I concede that you could think about the credibility discount in a more neutral way or in a way that is more constructive. I think for the most part, what I'm seeing is that this is part and parcel a very gendered, a very patriarchal rape law. That's really interesting. I think the argument that what these evidentiary mechanisms were doing were selecting out the kinds of sexual assaults that 
were going to be cognizable in the legal system versus other kinds. I think that's a very interesting argument. I want to turn a little bit from the history to what you found is going on today. We've abolished a lot of these requirements, although some of them still exist on the books in certain jurisdictions. Yet you're saying that, well, effectively, this has all just been pushed underground or in an informal way, the way that police and prosecutors handle these cases has effectively replicated the same kind of credibility discount that used to be formally applied. That's exactly right. And I should add that what brought me to the project was some thinking I'd been doing about the problem of under-enforcement in the rape law context. And the historical piece came about by way of an effort to understand these informal practices and to observe how deeply entrenched they are. But what, again, really drew me to this problem was a sense that case attrition in the sexual assault context is quite striking. It is unusual, and it is something that we need to reckon with. Quite apart from rape law reform, we can and should think about what our laws on the books prohibit. But at the end of the day, if they're not enforced or if they're dramatically under-enforced, then they're really not doing what they're designed to do, regardless of what they say. And so my article traces a report through the criminal process, starting with the decision to report or not to report. And I observe that for many survivors of sexual assault, there's an opting out of the system altogether. Now, there are many reasons for that. And I don't want to suggest that the only impetus for not reporting is the concern about not being believed. But I do think that that's a real concern. And studies bear this out, that for many survivors, the notion of the credibility discount, even if it's not discussed in those terms, is quite disincentivizing and it erects quite a barrier to moving forward. So that's at the very initial stage, to report or not to report. And then talk a lot about policing and what happens at the stage of complaining to a law enforcement officer and then the likelihood or unlikelihood that that report will translate into an arrest. And there's some good data that suggests that police officers often truncate their investigations. They decide not to gather or not even to seek out the kinds of corroborative evidence that would make a case into something other than a, quote, he said, she said case. And due to those truncated investigations, these cases are closed out at at very high rates. They're unfounded. And so that's a real problem. And then, you know, prosecutors as well engage in discounting. And what's fascinating about the prosecutorial stage is that the discounts are often framed by reference to what a likely juror will do with the evidence, how a likely juror will respond, and the deployment of the credibility discount by the trier of fact. And so, of course, prosecutors think about conviction and the likelihood of a conviction. And this, again, is another barrier to moving a case forward that I think we need to be thinking about. I think there's no doubt that both mechanisms that you identify here are a problem because this prevents victims from seeking justice. I think there's a, arguably a distinction between the two, 
the police cases, and you have a number of anecdotes in your article that are really quite disturbing, a number of the police cases are police officers effectively imposing some kind of moral judgment on the victim and then deciding based on that moral judgment, not really based on evidentiary concerns or concerns about the ability to prove the case. They're using those judgments to decide whether to move forward with the victim's case or not. Whereas I think the prosecutor story that you tell is one that is systemically problematic, but less illegitimate in terms of the way the prosecutor is behaving. To the extent that you have limited resources and you're trying to get convictions, there are certain cases that are just harder to prove. And even if you believe the victim, you are not necessarily going to move forward with it because it's just going to be hard to get the jury to go along with it. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't want to let prosecutors entirely off the hook. I at least consider the possibility that some of what prosecutors are saying about why they're not proceeding with these cases may be a way of ducking the question of their own priors with regard to the credibility of a complainant. And so it's very easy to talk about conviction and it's easy to talk about juror biases and much harder to own one's own biases in that regard. So I I do at least contemplate the possibility that some of this is, there's a degree of subterfuge involved. But that said, I agree that the problem here is systemic and whether or not it's the prosecutor's own views that are impeding the pursuit of these charges, maybe it's the jurors' anticipated views. Either way, we've got a systemic problem. And and this kind of anticipatory discounting, as I call it, creates barriers to justice. And we should care about those barriers, whether we impugn the motives of any individual prosecutor or not. Do you think the Me Too movement is going to change this particular environment going forward? I do. I think that one way to make sense of what's happening now and what's been going on uh, in the past year plus is that the credibility calculus may be shifting, the credibility calculus outside of the law and legal systems. But of course, there's a relationship between what happens outside of the law and what happens within it. And these are, of course, these legal actors, these criminal justice actors are people who live in the world, who read the newspaper, who are affected by the very same cultural shifts that we're all affected by. And so if it turns out that we're recalibrating our response to sexual misconduct allegations, be they sexual assault or sexual harassment, and we're drawing on a more accurate store of information about how this happens in the world, who's likely to be victimized, who's likely to perpetrate, and what it looks like in real life, then we may see some improvement in the problems that I'm identifying. And this discount may over time be diminished. That's the hope. It's interesting because the Me Too movement is really one about narrative. And the narrative becomes very salient for both members of the general public, but then it'll filter into the legal system. You note in your paper that empirically, there is really no evidence that false reporting of sexual assaults is any more common than any other crime, but yet there seems to be this persistent belief that there is a lot of false reporting going on. 
That's right. I try to dig into the research on false rape allegations, which is complicated. And yet seems to suggest that the rates of false reporting are much, much lower than what is conventionally believed, both outside of law enforcement and within it. None of this is to deny that false reports occur. It seems as if the kinds of reports that are more likely to be false are not the kinds of reports that law enforcement officers are prone to believe are false. And so allegations involving non-strangers, for instance, which are treated with the, the greatest skepticism, those are probably less likely to be false than sensational reports involving strangers and weapons and physical violence and the like. But putting that aside, the larger point that you make, I think, is a really important one, which is that part of this effort to recalibrate our understanding of how sexual assault is practiced in the world and what it looks like and how victims respond to it. Part of that effort to improve the accuracy of our stores of information and the backdrop against which we judge credibility, that is aided in large part by this Me Too movement and by the stories now in circulation about what this all looks like. I do think we're in the midst of this massive shift that may bring us to a much better place, not only outside of the law, but within it as well. So I'd like to turn back a little bit to our earlier discussion about evidentiary skepticism with some of these claims and whether there are instances where some of that skepticism might be legitimate. I should note at the outset that the examples in your paper are the ones where the officers are just executing some kind of moral judgment or some decision about how rape law should be enforced. Those are I think clearly extra legal and a problem. But it got me thinking about this example. When someone reports a robbery, I think it's fair to say that our generalist presumption is that the victim is telling the truth. When someone claims a sexual assault, I think that's not necessarily the automatic presumption. We might be more skeptical or we might wonder a little bit about whether the victim is telling the whole story. And I find that curious because is that skepticism illegitimate? Is that effectively another version of the credibility discount and perhaps one that's even more pernicious because it's not so obvious? Or is there some evidentiary legitimacy on that? The one justification that I could come up with, and this is not new, right, is that with many crimes, we can often expect the existence of physical corroborating evidence. If you have a robbery, you expect that the robber will possess stolen goods or something like that, so we can pin the robber back to the crime. With a sexual assault case, depending on the specific facts, but some sexual assault cases are more ambiguous. Does that justify the greater skepticism or as I was saying before, is that still a version of the credibility discount that you identify? I think it's a version of the credibility discount if it creates a baseline of skepticism that, again, is unwarranted. And let me say a little bit more about why I think it's unwarranted. I'm looking at police officers in much of the research that I cite in the article. It turns out that these tropes of disbelief seem to center on the possibility that either the accuser is vindictive and therefore lying, 
or she's regretful about having had consensual intercourse with the accused and so she's lying, or that she's incapable of assessing whether she consented because she was intoxicated. And so these are the themes that kind of run throughout interviews with law enforcement officers who, as you suggest, start from the proposition that that there's reason to be unduly cautious about sexual assault allegations. And it turns out that none of these possibilities, absent other kinds of evidence about a particular accuser, none of these possibilities are especially likely. In other cases, motivation to lie is something that we look for before we, again, start from the notion that an accuser is lying. Now, I do want to say, because I think your question brings this up, that crediting an accuser's account is not the same thing as deciding there's sufficient evidence to prove, let's say, beyond a reasonable doubt in court that this incident occurred. And so I do want to carve out a space for crediting, again, crediting the survivor's version of events, not starting from the proposition or ending at the proposition that she's lying. And still, because as you suggest, there may not be any corroborative evidence, despite a hunt, a true hunt for it. There may be no corroborative evidence, and there may be some ambiguities that the defense would raise. And so I don't want to say that every credible case involving a credible account of sexual assault ought to go forward and result in a finding of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. I don't want to suggest that. But I do think that at the outset, we are far too quick to come at these allegations with disbelief and with skepticism and with caution that is not warranted by the facts and by the evidence. I like that distinction a lot, that the accusers here are being discounted right off the bat. And it's not even a careful weighing of, can you actually determine this beyond a reasonable doubt that is driving a lot of the discounting that is going on. Actually, one thing that I saw in your article that I think will be very interesting to observe is to the extent that a lot of these cases are increasingly worked out in college disciplinary proceedings, which operate under a preponderance standard, this concern about beyond a reasonable doubt changes considerably because when you're under a preponderance standard, then there's really no justification for putting a lot of weight against the accuser, which the beyond a reasonable doubt standard naturally does. Yes, that's right. I've spoken to many adjudicators of these kinds of campus allegations who've said that they're well aware that finding of no responsibility in a preponderance college or university is in effect a statement to the complainant that she's not believable. I'd like to turn to the final part of your paper where you make a really interesting constitutional move. We talked a bit about how the problem here may or may not be about individual actors, but there's almost no doubt that there's a systemic problem that is going on. And you argue that the systemic discounting is a form of discrimination and as a form of discrimination ultimately violates equal protection. Could you take a minute to sketch out that argument for us and tell us how pushing that constitutional claim might help address the problem? Sure. The first step, as you say, is to identify this as a problem of discrimination, to connect 
the credibility discount to a type of injustice that is most helpfully understood as disadvantaging a class of individuals. And I make the argument that there is very much a gendered component to this discounting dynamic. And then I, I want to think about under-enforcement and the ways in which the under-enforcement of rape laws implicates equal protection. And there are certainly the cases to suggest that. There are some ongoing cases that will be interesting to watch that make the argument, for instance, that the systemic disregard of rape kits that have been collected, often the destruction of those rape kits, often the storage of those rape kits without further action, that that in itself constitutes a denial of equal protection and, and is being pursued under 1983 as that kind of action. I want to argue that credibility discounting is an important part of that story. And that, for instance, the rape kits, the shelved rape kits are a symptom of this larger problem that is in itself worthy of redress and certainly worthy of identification. And so the argument is that bringing this richer account of the kinds of discrimination that sexual assault complainants are facing is more likely to give the court, in this case, a better sense of what is happening on the ground and why it matters and the extent of the harm suffered by its victims. Final question for you. What's next? What projects are you working on now? Well, two that relate to the conversation we're having. I'm interested in tracing the evolution of the credibility discount through sexual harassment law. So this piece focuses very much on the criminal justice system. But my intuition is that sexual misconduct complainants have generally been met with this kind of skepticism and that I could do the same work of looking at the law and drawing connections between the law and then the enforcement piece of sexual harassment doctrine. And I think that would be interesting and worthwhile. I also want to think about credibility inflation and the flip side of, of what I've been calling the discount. Who is entitled to some kind of automatic credibility by virtue of gender, race, class? And what does that look like? I think that those are projects that will occupy me down the road. Well, Deb, thanks for taking the time to talk about the credibility discount in sexual assault cases and really giving us a new lens to view the problem of sexual assault. It's my pleasure. Thanks for talking to me, Ed. I didn't realize it at first, but one of the most important contributions of Deb's paper is giving us language for describing the skepticism that victims of sexual violence often face. Indeed, as Deb suggests, it is a credibility discount. Crime victims ordinarily are not met with questioning looks. If someone stole your car, they stole your car. The first reaction is not to suspect that you are trying to commit insurance fraud or forgot where you parked it. With sexual assault victims, though, the attitude is often different. As our discussion suggested, how and why this credibility discount occurs varies. Some or most of it is clearly extra-legal. For example, actors with outmoded views about what constitutes sexual assault rendering personal moral judgments or behaving in ways otherwise contrary to law. Some of it, though, is more complicated. For example, 
concerns about the availability of corroborative evidence in this context, or difficulties associated with the burden of proof in light of the limited available evidence. This second set, I think, presents more difficult issues, though I think it's clear that Deb is right in her assertion that complainants are owed the right to be taken seriously and sympathetically, and even today, they are still often not. It will be interesting to see what the Me Too movement does to the credibility discount going forward. As I discussed with Deb after the interview, only a few decades ago, child sex abuse allegations were often dismissed as incredible. Who could imagine a pillar of the community engaging in such heinous acts? Today, though, we sadly know better. The events of the last year or last two years may have changed the way we view sexual assault or sexual harassment claims forever. In the meantime, I look forward to seeing Deb's future work on the credibility discount in sexual harassment cases, as well as her work on the credibility inflation. The next few years should be a really interesting period of change for evidence and proof in this space. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Megan Cole, and the music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.